for you guys. Uh, church, if you would turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we started our study of 1 Samuel a few weeks ago, and we're going to continue in that study today. We've been uh, walking through uh, the story leading up to Samuel's birth. We learned about his mother Hannah and uh, her husband Elkanah and, and the faith of Hannah. Last Lord's Day, we looked at Hannah's prayer. And if you were with us last Lord's Day, I started out with a quote from Patrick Morley. And I want to read that quote again because it pertains to our message today. Uh, Morley wrote in one of his books, There is a God we want and there is a God who is. And they are not the same God. The turning point of our lives is when we stop seeking the God we want and we start seeking the God who is. And the God who is is the God who's been revealed to us uh, by the God who is through his word. And so in order for us to understand who God truly is, we don't go with our notions, we don't go with our emotions, we don't go with what we think about God or what we want God to be. We look to what God's word says. And so we looked last Lord's Day at Hannah's prayer and what we learn about the God who is in that prayer that was so rich about the attributes of God, about how our God is the God who saves and our God is the God who is sovereign and our God is the God who is faithful. And what we'll see today as we read through this text about Eli's wicked sons, his worthless sons, is that our God is also the God who judges. And our God is a God who takes sin seriously. And that's important for us to recognize today because we live in a culture, and oftentimes we live within churches, that do not take sin seriously. I was reminded of this just this week. I saw a picture of a billboard for an attorney it had a picture of the attorney on it, and it said this, Just because you did it, doesn't mean you're guilty. <laughs> you think about that for a second. Just because you did it, doesn't mean you're guilty. I mean, that is our world today. And we see the culture, the context in which Samuel is born is a place where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We read that at the end of the book of Judges. And you look around our world today, and what do we see? The same thing. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. And we see this specifically in 1 Samuel 2 with Eli's sons. And what's even worse about it is that these were the religious leaders of their day. So this was a dark time for the people of Israel. These were dark days, but God was about to shine a great light. And we'll see that as we look at today's passage. So this passage today is a little longer, uh, but it gives us a picture of Eli's sons and it contrasts them with Samuel. And so I want you to look for that contrast as we read through this passage. So out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read for us, I'm going to begin with 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 11 and read down through the end of the chapter. And this is what God's holy word says. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. And while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, 
Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as they wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. And she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is No good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel." Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of the people of Israel? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever." The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. He should do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. 
And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. If you will pray with me. Father, this is your holy word. And as your people, we are accountable to it. So help us, Lord, to revere it today. Help us to listen to it today. Change us through it today. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. This was a dark time for the people of Israel, but as we consider the history of the church, we often see that it's in the darkest times among God's people that the light is about to break through. And we can see many examples of this throughout church history. So for example, you look to the early 1500s and the church in Europe had drifted away from the essential teachings of the faith, had distorted the truth of God's word. It was a dark time for the church in Europe and around the world, but the light broke through. On October 31st, 1517, when a German monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church doors at Wittenberg, there's a call for public debate over the false teachings of the church. And that lit a spark that would ignite a fire that would spread throughout Europe and would bring great and needed reformation to the church as the true gospel would spread. But Europe would not stay faithful to that gospel, they would lose their way again and they would be a great influence on others. And so by the time you get to the 1700s and the age of the Enlightenment in the mid-1700s and you see how that age of Enlightenment spread around the world and here to America, you see that we had dark days here as well. We see in the early colonies how this darkness had distorted the gospel to the point that by 1740, an American pastor named Samuel Blair wrote that in his day, religion lay, as it were, dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. In the early days in the Americas, the church seemed all but lost because the gospel seemed lost, but God had other plans. Within that same year, one of the greatest revivals ever experienced took place in the first great awakening. Preachers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield would, would preach the gospel with such conviction that men and women and children came to faith in Jesus Christ. Churches were planted, lives were transformed. And yet we too find ourselves in a day when we have lost our way again. When we look around our world today, we look around our nation today, we see violence in the streets, we see corruption in our government. We see scandal in our churches. But I hope that as we come to God's word today, that you and I are encouraged because it is in the darkness, darkest days that we see the light break forth because God is sovereign and we see his sovereign hand at work as we consider what takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 2. So I want us to walk through this text today and consider how that light breaks through, beginning with the first point there in your outline. Number one, we see that man's sin will not thwart the sovereign plan of God. 
As we consider what takes place here with Eli's sons and and how their sin is spreading and and this dark day in Israel, we also see that God is at work. But in order to understand that work and to appreciate that work, we have to recognize the darkness that was taking place. Notice what we read in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men and they did not know the Lord. He's speaking here of Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests of the Lord at the temple. And what we find is that they were interested in serving themselves more than in serving the Lord. And we see that through how they treated the offering. And as I read through that passage, some of you may have heard what they were doing with the meat and how they would stick the three-pronged fork in there, how they would demand the uncooked meat. And you may have heard that and thought, well, I don't understand what the real problem is here. And You have to go back to the book of Leviticus to understand why this is so problematic. Because there in Leviticus, we see as the law is given, God is very specific about the offering. He had provided for the priest to be fed from the offering, but there were very specific portions of it that were to go to the priest, and there were very specific portions that were to be offered before the Lord. But what Phinehas and his brother were doing here, Hophni, is they weren't following God's instructions. That's why in verse 17 it says, The sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Essentially what this means is that they were taking the word of God that had been revealed to them, and they were basically just disregarding it and not paying attention to it. Now again, we might look at this and say, what's the big deal? (laughs) You know, God told them to eat these things. They were eating these things. I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, after all, let me ask you a question this morning. I'm going to do a little participation here. Raise your hand if you've ever in your life gone on a diet. Okay, the people with their hands down are the ones asleep. Nudge them, wake them up. Okay. Now, raise your hand if you have ever cheated on that diet. All the same hands go up. We have diets now that have cheat days built into them. Human nature is we're not going to follow all the rules. So we can lay out before us. We can buy volumes of cookbooks. We can have laid out, okay, eat this, eat this, eat this. This is what we're going to do. But what's going to happen? Inevitably, we're going to cheat on that diet. We're going to eat something we're not supposed to eat. So we come to a passage like this. And it's easy for us just to look at this almost like Hophni and Phinehas just had a cheat day. But friends, that's not what this is. It's a big deal that God told them what to eat and not to eat and they disobeyed. Because it goes all the way back to the garden where what takes place. God tells Adam and Eve what to eat and not eat and they disobeyed. This is a matter of obedience to the holy word of God. And what we see in Hophni and Phinehas is what we see in the human heart today. That we are bent and intent on going our own way according to what we want to do. To serving a God of our own invention rather than the God who is. We see it's not just a matter of not eating and eating things that, that, that God forbidden. It's also a matter of other things. Verse 22 says they were involved in sexual sin with women outside of the temple. So these truly were worthless, sinful men. And they were the priests of the temple. 
And if you and I had been alive during this day and we had seen this picture on the evening news in Israel that these chief leaders, these chief priests were the ones with great scandal and great sin, then we might look at that and say, well, all hope is lost. There's a dark day. How can we ever recover from this? But if you'll notice, and we'll see this throughout the study of 1 Samuel, as God has given us this picture of wickedness and darkness, He's also giving us glimmers of light. He is contrasting for us the worthless sons of Eli with the righteous son of Hannah. Notice there in verse 18, He tells us about Samuel, how he's genuinely serving the Lord in the temple. He tells us about Hannah and her faithfulness, how she would come to the temple each year and she would bring these priestly garments for her son to wear. And again, I think there's a picture here of Hannah's faithfulness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this and I read about how worthless Eli's sons were, I begin to question Hannah a little bit. I think it's one thing for you to take your young son and commit him to the service of the Lord. But what we read in this text is that everybody in Israel was hearing about the scandal and the worthlessness of Eli's sons who were serving in the same temple. Imagine bringing your young son and putting him in that context and in that place. And yet I think this shows us, it gives us a glimpse of Hannah's faithfulness that she truly was trusting the Lord, that God would take care of her son. And that's exactly what God did. So the years are passing as we're reading these verses, and Eli's growing physically, but he's also growing in his obedience to the Lord. And at the same time, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they are growing in their wickedness, and they're growing in their disobedience. And we see this contrast, and as we see it, We're reminded that as worthless as they were, as wicked as they were, God was still at work and they would not thwart his sovereign plan. We're also reminded, point two, that the wages of sin is death. And we see the sin of Hophni and Phinehas is not going to thwart God's plan, but it will incur his wrath. And so notice what takes place here beginning in verse 22. Eli's an old man now. Eli's sons are grown. Eli's sons have been doing this for years and years and years. And now finally, Eli is going to go and confront his sons about their sin. But you notice even in his confrontation, even in his rebuke, we don't really have a picture of faithfulness here in Eli. First of all, look at how long it's taken him to say anything to him. And there seems to be little to no consequence other than just the words he gives them. Eli, in his position as priest, he could have removed his sons from serving in this temple, but he doesn't do that. And his sons seem to have no respect for their father. Verse 25 says, they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So we've got two issues here. First, we've got the issue of their hardened hearts towards their father and towards God. But then we have this verse that can be a bit troubling to us. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now we can come to that and think, sometimes immediately, wait, 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 that doesn't seem real fair. We need to understand here, Hophni and Phinehas were worthless men. They weren't seeking to please God. They weren't ready to walk an aisle as the choir sang, just as I am. No, they were bent on sin against the Lord. And they rightly deserved death for their sin. In fact, friends, what we find about the God who is as we read his revealed word 
that God's will is to bring judgment against the wicked. Psalm 7 verse 11 says God is a righteous judge. That means he is perfectly just. He's not like judges in our day. He cannot be bought off. He doesn't discriminate. He doesn't look the other way. He rightly judges. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So the right just judgment against sin is the consequence of God's wrath and of death on the worthless and the ungodly. God cannot be a righteous judge if he looks the other way. He is just to condemn us for our sin. And friends, we rightly deserve judgment because of our sin. And I think we don't so much have a problem with that uh, when we think about other people's sin. So you may think of it this way. We live in a community uh, where over recent years there's been a number of unsolved crimes that have taken place. And so it's not unusual for you to be driving through our community and to see a sign that says justice for a victim. Justice for a victim. And when we see that sign, what is that saying? It's saying that people are demanding and crying out for justice in a situation where they see or perceive a wrong has been committed. They want justice for that person's memory. They want justice for that person's, the person who committed that sin. But the question is this, do you and I want that same justice in our own life? If God is a right and just judge, and the scripture says he is, then we have to understand that the scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, and the wages of sin is death. That means we rightly deserve God's wrath for our sin. That means when you lost your temper, that means when you cursed that driver, that means when you thought that unrighteous thought that just went through your mind and you thought where in the world did that come from the right judgment of God on you and I is that we deserve rightly that the just thing in that situation what we deserve rightly is we deserve a consequence for our sin but we live again in a day and age where we we don't want consequence just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty that's what our culture says, but that's not what God's word says. I was thinking on this recently as I was listening to a sermon by Derek Thomas. And in this sermon, he was talking about Jonathan Edwards' a famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, even if you've not heard that sermon or read that sermon, you've probably at least heard of that sermon. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, that great preacher during the First Great Awakening, preached this infamous sermon in July of 1741. His text for his sermon was Deuteronomy 32. Their foot shall slide and do time. And as I listened to Thomas's sermon, I was reminded of these pictures that, that Edwards gave in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He, he gave this picture of these, these lead balls that were going to fall straight into the depths of hell. Were it not for the hand of God sovereignly holding them from following. He said that's, that's God's mercy in this moment. That, that we are those lead balls. We rightly deserve to plunge into hell. And it's only by the hand and the grace of God that we haven't. 
He spoke of the grace of God as this great dam holding back million upon millions of gallons of water, this great flood of judgment that we rightly deserve and that would come rushing over us in our sin if it were not for the hand of God holding them back. Edwards preached that sermon in a day when people needed to hear and understand about the reality of a real hell, of the reality of God's wrath that rightly comes against our sin, that they might hear it and they might repent, and that's exactly what they did. And friends, we desperately need to hear that same message today. When we have a distorted picture of God, This picture that he'll just look the other way. This picture that he doesn't take sin very seriously. We come to texts like 1 Samuel 2 and we were reminded, no, the God who is, is a God who takes sin very seriously. And if it were not for his mercy today, we would have no hope. But we do have hope and we find that hope in Jesus, which is our third point there in your outline. Jesus Christ is our only hope. We come to the latter part of 1 Samuel 2. We see how Eli rebukes his sons. They won't listen to him. So now the Lord rejects Eli and his household. He he turns from them. He, He pronounces a death sentence on them. What he says will happen is exactly what will happen. He's done with them at this point. He is pulling back the floodgate. He is releasing his hand. They are now going to face his wrath and his consequence rightly and justly. But notice what else God says through this holy man who comes to Eli. And he tells him there in verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Unlike the unfaithfulness of Eli and his sons, a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now I think specifically this is a reference to Zadok, who was a priest under David, whose descendants held the high priesthood under Solomon. But it's also a reminder to us that that ultimately God would provide a perfect priest in his son, Jesus, who is our perfect prophet, our perfect priest and our perfect king. He's the perfect prophet. He, He is the word made flesh. He is the one that comes and we need to listen to him. He is the perfection of God's word. That's why when Jesus said something, we need to do it the way Jesus said to do it. He says he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. That means the only way to God, the only hope we have is through Jesus Christ. And no other way. Because Jesus said it and he's the word and he's the perfect prophet. Not only that, we see he's the perfect king. He is the sovereign and he rules with justice and righteousness. He is preparing a new heaven and a new earth and a glory that awaits those who are his subjects and those who have sworn allegiance to him. Those who have confessed him as Lord. He rules sovereignly. He's the perfect king. And he is indeed the perfect priest. Unlike the sinful, unfaithful mediators we see in the Old Testament so often, Jesus is the one who perfectly goes before God on our behalf. And because Jesus is the perfect prophet and the perfect priest and the perfect king, he is the one who can perfectly atone for your sin and mine. And that is what he did on the cross. 
that, that flood of wrath that we deserve, Jesus took upon himself. That that weight of sin and judgment that should just plunge over us, Jesus paid on our behalf. So that if you are in Christ this morning, your debt has been paid. But if you're not, the right and the just thing for God to do is to bring his wrath against you. And we see that's exactly what he does. And so the gospel gives us hope. Because through the gospel, we can trust in Jesus who paid for our sin, who faced God's wrath on our behalf, rather than facing that wrath on our own, like Eli's worthless sons. I listened recently to a message, read a message by Harry Ironside. He pastored Moody Church in Chicago for 20 years in the mid-1900s. And there's a story he told in that message, and he would often tell, that I think illustrates this point, he would talk about the days on the prairies when pioneers in America were making their way out west and how they would go in these wagon trains across the prairie and how they would come to obstacles like rivers and, and the great effort they would go through to, to cross over these rivers and come out on the other side. And there would be times that as they come through that river and come to the other side and travel that at the distance they would see a cloud of smoke. And that they understood in that day what was taking place, that there was a wildfire there out in the prairie and it was making its way towards them. He told the story how as that fire was coming, when there wasn't time to turn back and go back across that river, how these early settlers would then light a fire on the brush around them and they would burn out a circle and they would ever widen this circle so that when the fire got to them, the fire would burn out. Why? Because the ground was already burnt. He told of a young boy in one of these situations who grew alarmed as they saw this fire moving towards them and an elderly man who looked at this child and said, my child, the flames cannot reach you because we're standing where the flames have already burnt. Friends, if you are in Jesus Christ today, then the good news of the gospel is this. You and I are standing where the flames of God's wrath have already burned. We are covered by the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. Our debt has been paid. God's wrath has been satisfied. But if you are here this morning and you're a casual observer, you're hearing this, but you're not really taking it to heart. You've not really honestly dealt with the fact that you are a sinner in the hand of an angry God. You've never actually repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and your sovereign. If you're here this morning and you're walking through life how you want to, according to the God of your own imagination and the God you want, and not listening to the God who is, who calls you to repent and to trust in Jesus then you're not on ground that's already been burnt. And that smoke's getting closer. And that fire of wrath will burn for eternity and you will suffer under it. But God gives us hope. And God gives us a way of escape. And that's through His Son, Jesus. And so, friend, if you've never truly trusted in Jesus, then the scripture says, may today be the day of salvation for you. And so we want to offer that opportunity to you this morning.
As you consider God's word, if you find you're in a place today where perhaps you've understood intellectually the gospel, maybe you've grown up understanding, well, I know God loves me and I know Jesus died for me, but, but you've never actually responded to the call of Romans 10 to confess Jesus as your Lord, to, to publicly acknowledge that Jesus Christ is sovereign and that he rules and to place full authority and full of your control of your life in his hands and not in your own. If you've never truly done that, and we invite you to do that today. And so I'm going to offer time just to pray for you and for each of us to have a moment to pray and to consider these things. So if you would, everyone, just bow your hands as we take a moment to consider God's word and respond to it. God's word is very clear to us, friend, that unless we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, if we do not do that, we will not be saved. Jesus himself has said very clearly, he is the way, the truth, and their life. There's no other way to the Father but through him. So if you find yourself in a place this morning where you've yet to confess Christ as Lord, then I want to invite you to take a moment now, just as we're all praying, to go before God in prayer, to confess Jesus as your Lord, to repent and turn from your sin, and to place your whole faith and your whole belief in Christ as Lord. Friend, would you do that right now as we pray? And for those of you who have already done that, would you take a moment right now to pray for those who haven't? Would you take a moment right now to pray for your loved ones, for your co-workers, for your family, for your friends who haven't confessed Christ as Lord? Would you lift them up and pray for them by name that they might put their hope and their trust in Jesus? Church, let's just take a moment and pray for these things now. Father, we come before you today in the name of Jesus Christ, understanding that Christ is our only hope. We see clearly in your word that this picture today in 1 Samuel 2 of judgment that falls on the ungodly. And Lord, we recognize that your word teaches that judgment is coming and that we rightly deserve it. We thank you, Lord, for, that for those who have truly trusted in Jesus and confessed Christ as Lord that we're standing on ground that's already been burnt, that your wrath has been satisfied by your son and we are covered by his blood. So help us, Lord, for those who've really, truly, genuinely trusted in Jesus to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us, Lord, not to be overwhelmed or anxious or worried as we look at the godlessness around us but, Lord, to recognize that throughout your word and throughout the history of the church, that it's in these dark moments that the light is about to break forth. And help us, Lord, to look towards future glory that is coming and that new heaven and new earth that our King, our sovereign Jesus, is preparing for us. And, Father, as we pray for these things, I do pray for any who are gathered here with us today, for the people that we know, the people we love, who have yet to trust in Jesus. We know that's a work of the Holy Spirit, and we pray that the Spirit would do that work and that people would place their faith in you. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to stand together and we're going to sing about what it means to have Christ as our sure foundation and our solid rock. So as you stand together, I just want to offer to you an opportunity as we talk about the gospel and we talk about what it means to put your faith in Jesus. If you have questions about that, please talk to me, talk to Pastor Nick. We would love to spend time this week talking more with you about the gospel. As we were praying, if God burdened you with your need to trust in Jesus, to confess Jesus as Lord, perhaps you prayed that very thing this morning. Well, please talk to us and let us know that so we can follow up with you and we can talk to you about what it means to walk with Christ and to start this new journey in faith together. And as we're about to sing, it begins with an understanding that Christ is our foundation. He is our solid rock and it's on his truth that we stand. So let's celebrate that as we sing this song together.